0: All right, well, we're back. You can open your Bibles once again to Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10. And if you weren't here last week, you really missed out because we just such a good time talking about the funnest topic of all in Scripture, of course, being divorce. And that's where we find us in Mark chapter 10. We begin a new chapter and Jesus just talks about divorce. And we're going through verse by verse. So that's, that's what, we, what we get to run into and talk about. And in all seriousness, it was just as unpopular and contentious a topic back then as it is today. But still, whenever Jesus talks, we want to listen. He's revealing to us the Word and the will of God. And granted, I know when you come to church, you're never hoping and praying that the pastor's going to be preaching on divorce. That being said, it's an important enough issue to make it into Scripture. God has something to say about it. And so I want to know, what does God have to say about something like divorce? And from Jesus, we find out. Last week I started off by giving you some divorce statistics. I think we're all familiar with that stat that roughly 50% of marriages end a divorce, so they say. Or rather, the divorce rate hovers around 50%, meaning each year for every 100 marriages there are 50 divorces, which is a lot. It's a high number. It hasn't always been this way, but as we talked last week, things really changed in the 1970s when no-fault divorce laws went into effect. Before, you had to prove the, to a judge the existence of adultery or abuse or abandonment, to get a divorce. But that all changed after the 1970s. You could get a divorce pretty much for any reason. And when those laws passed, the divorce rate jumped up to about 50%. And today I think it's like 42, but still, it's a pretty high number. I think we're all familiar with that statistic, but there's another statistic that you you may be familiar with. Some surveys show that the divorce rate in the church is no different and that in the world. Have you heard that before? Some surveys show that even for Christians, the divorce rate is still in that 40-50% range. No different from non-Christians. Hearing this can be kind of a shock, even a discouragement to people in the church. Something as important as marriage, those numbers are sending the message that your salvation in Christ, being a Christian, has no real impact in your life. Being a Christian doesn't make you really any better or at advantage to those in the world. It's kind of discouraging. Numbers like that can produce a sense of futility about marriage, even letting some think, well, I guess it's okay to throw in the towel because there's no difference in the church. But if you've heard those numbers before and you always felt, that doesn't sound right, you're not alone. Many have pointed out the flaws in those few surveys which have shown divorce in the church to be no different than divorce in the world. Notably, how is the word Christian being defined? In these surveys on Christian divorce, who is being counted as a Christian? According to these same survey makers, they say that 80% of Americans are Christian. And that right there should probably send a red flag up in your mind because although 80% of Americans may culturally identify with Christianity. By no means are 80% of Americans actually confessing and living as if Jesus was truly Lord of their life. So others have done a new study surveying people more specifically according to their actual beliefs and actual practices. These surveys identify people with very orthodox beliefs. They believe the Bible is literally true. They take it seriously. Very orthodox practices these people attend church every week. They read the Bible every day. They pray often together as a couple. And they just are serious Christians. And when it comes to these couples, they found that the divorce rate was notably lower. For instance, a University of Virginia study that's not a Christian college found that what they call active conservative Protestants are 35% less likely to divorce than the non religious. It's consistent among men, women, young, old, rich, poor. It didn't really matter. The point is couples who not just identify themselves as Christians, but they live life as if that were really true, have a much lower divorce rate. Now, I don't look at statistics as validation of the Word of God. The Word of God doesn't need any validation. It's true. But these numbers, they're, they're consistent with what we would expect from the Bible. Because, look, if you're truly born again, if by your repentance and faith God makes you alive in Christ, then everything's going to change in your life. Your life will change. Your actions will change. Your attitudes will change. Your desires will change. You will come to love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. And that includes divorce. We Remember last week, the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi 2.16, 2, God says, I hate divorce. And we as Christians, we're not perfect. But you should be serious. You should be a serious disciple of Christ. And if you are serious, you're, you're not immune to divorce, but you're going to do everything you can to fight for your marriage because God loves that. And you're going to do all you can to avoid divorce because God hates that. So yes, we do expect the divorce rate to be lower in the church. And when you're dealing with, we're talking about people who are Christian not just by name, but by actual life, or what scripture says, then indeed the divorce rate is lower. And all this goes to say, the point I'm making is that it's true. God's ways are good. The way of the world, the way of sin, all it does is separate and divide people. Uh, that's what sin does. Sin separates people. Sin separates us from God, separates us from one another. So you put two sinners together in the same house, married, living 24-7. They're sin. It's going to start to divide them, all of us. They're going to suffer that. When you pair that with a culture of selfishness, where self-fulfillment becomes the greatest good, then it's no wonder that divorce rates have gone through the roof. People are merely encountering that the fallout from sin that is not being dealt with. But divorce is not the answer. It's not the key to true happiness. Divorce is just trading one problem for another. Most of, most of those who go through divorce, they find they're, they're not happier now and they just have the wreckage of a broken family to deal with it's not good this is not the way it's not how it's meant to be and there is a better way the way there's a way which seems right to man but its end is the way of death proverbs 16:25. but instead how blessed is he who fears the lord who walks in his ways psalm 128 verse 1 the way of the lord that's the way to true blessing In this life and the next, the path of Jesus is the path of peace. And that's because although sin separates and divides us, the gospel reconciles and brings us together. The good news of Jesus Christ enables us to be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. God wants to see families stay together. And although sin pulls us apart, what we have in Christ can can knit us together and overcome that. He wants to see families overcome their sin through the gospel, and this glorifies God. This blesses us, and marriages they stay together. I just hope that as you as you hear all about this, as we start to get into it, you're just thinking to yourself, "I want to know really the way of the Lord. Where is that way? Well, what does that way look like? What is the way of the Lord, especially when it comes to marriage and divorce and the family?" I want to walk that blessed path. I don't want the suffering and the hardship. Tell me what I can do, what God has for me. What's his way? Starting last week, we encountered that way in Mark chapter 10. We, We just turn the page to Mark chapter 10, and right away we find Jesus teaching on divorce. Some Pharisees had approached Jesus, and they're trying to trap him when it comes to this sticky topic of divorce. In that day, their culture was just like ours. Divorce was accepted. People were getting a divorce for any old reason. And the Jews, led by the Pharisees, they even justified it. They attached a little Bible verse to it, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. So the Pharisees, they're coming up to Jesus. They already support divorce, and they already know Jesus is a hardliner on divorce. So they're trying to trap him. They're trying to set him up to oppose divorce, because that's going to diminish his popularity with the people. If you're standing in front of a crowd, and that crowd has a lot of divorced people in it, and you start teaching that God is opposed to divorce, you're going to get real unpopular with that crowd real fast. That's what they're trying to do. But Jesus turns the tables on them. First, he dismantles their abuse of Deuteronomy 24. By no means did Moses command divorce. and We studied that passage last week. That passage was given not not as a command, even a condoning divorce. The passage was given to try and stop divorce, or at least regulate it in the case of protecting the woman. But by no means is that God's ideal for marriage. God hates divorce. Instead, Jesus took the Pharisees to the real word from Moses on divorce and marriage. That's found in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 back at, at the very start, at creation, God revealed His will for marriage and the family. And we found that last week. Just to refresh your memory, if you're at Mark 10, look at verses 6 through 9. How did Jesus counter their teaching? He said in Mark 10, verse 6, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two. But one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And with this statement, Jesus was slamming down the loophole that the Pharisees thought they had found in the Old Testament. And he's showing God's real will for marriage. Marriage, according to God, is between one man and one woman, uniting them together as one flesh for life. And where does divorce play a role in God's plan in Genesis 1 and 2? It's not there. It doesn't play a part in his plan. Divorce plays no role in God's plan. It's not meant to be. What God has joined together, let no man separate. The culture back then is just like our culture today. Had a very low view of marriage and a high view of divorce. But Jesus confronts that and he challenges that and he may be challenging you because God has an extremely high view of marriage a very low view of divorce. This is where we left off last week. But we're not quite done. Because if you're just going off of Mark 10, if that's the only thing Jesus ever said about divorce, we'd get the impression that God never, ever permits or allows divorce for Christians. But we did make the observation last week that here in Mark 10, Jesus he's not speaking pastorally to his sheep. He's talking to wolves. Jesus is repudiating the Pharisees. He's opposing their culture of easy divorce, which demolishes God's design for the family. But this isn't Christ's only word on the issue. He said more. More can be said. More actually needs to be said when it comes to this whole issue of divorce because, you know, us gathering here, I take it you're not wolves, I certainly hope, that you're sheep. And we get the point from Mark chapter 10 the way of the Lord here is clear. God has a very high view of marriage. It's meant to be for life. People should not be separating for any old reason. However, divorce is a reality in our world because sin is a reality in our world. So we, we're coming from the perspective of sheep and we want to ask Jesus some more questions like the disciples did. Lord, we, we want to know. Is there ever a time when God does permit divorce? And what should we do if we're in an extremely difficult relationship? I mean, we're just stuck forever. And well, what does God say? And how do we deal with existing divorces and remarriages that have already took place? What do we do about that? And many questions, and coming from the perspective of sheep, there's a lot of questions that we need some answers to and that's, that's why we're here today. That's why we decided to come back for a part two to this teaching on divorce from Jesus. Just trying to get answers to some of these other questions. Find out what else does Scripture say about divorce. Hey, like last week, I know, it's not, it's not the funnest topic here on Sunday mornings, but it's needed, especially given our culture. We, just, we need to know clearly what is God's way when it comes to marriage and the family. I want to know the way of the Lord. I want to follow the way of the Lord. So show me the way. We're going to find out more about that today. So along these lines, here's what we're going to try and do. Six questions about divorce answered from Scripture. Simple enough. Just a little Q&A format, except I'm answering and asking all the questions. But six questions about divorce answered from Scripture. And that's what we want to know. I don't care what the culture says. I want to know what God and His Word says. So six questions about divorce answered from Scripture. Now to start off, we already know God's design for marriage. One man, one woman, married for life. We already know his attitude toward divorce. God hates divorce. But we have passages like Deuteronomy 24 where divorce is tolerated. So it makes us wonder, question number one, is divorce ever permitted by God? Question one, is divorce ever permitted by God? In the Old Testament, we find divorce indirectly being permitted by God. Divorce was a reality in the Old Testament. For example, Leviticus 21, verse 7, says that priests were not allowed to take divorced women as their wives. This is one example showing divorce. It existed, it was accepted, but there still was a stigma attached to it. The thing about the Old Testament, though, is it doesn't tell us much directly when it comes to divorce. There's another very interesting passage I want to expose you to found in Ezra chapter 10. You don't have to turn there, but Ezra 10. Remember how Israel was exiled by God? Remember the whole part? They lost, they're kicked out of the land, they're taken exile to foreign countries. Remember why God judged them like this and he allowed them to be exiled? Primary culprit was their idolatry. And do you remember the top factor leading Israel into idolatry? top factor was them marrying foreign spouses. God strictly forbid the Jews from taking pagan spouses because he knew it was going to lead their hearts astray and into idolatry. They didn't listen, and it did. And so they were exiled for this. Now Ezra, he's writing after the exile. And Jews, they're starting to come back to the Holy Land, to Jerusalem. But as they start to return, guess what they do again? They start marrying foreign wives once again. And guess what happens? Their hearts are starting to be led astray again. So Ezra, he's a scribe. He's their spiritual leader. He's mourning over their disobedience once again. And he's convicted. This has to be stopped. We can't let this happen again and Israel to be doomed again. So Ezra, he assembles all of Israel back to himself. Whoever's back in the land gathers them all to Jerusalem. And he leads Israel in a national repentance. Everyone, together. And what did they all decide to do? They all agreed on a course of action. And what was it? Divorce. Every Israelite who had married a foreign wife decided they should divorce their foreign wives send them back to their country. And that's what they did. You've afraid of today these mass marriages where like 50 people get married at the same time? This was a mass divorce. It's in Ezra chapter 10. Now the thing is, that passage, it's called a descriptive passage, not a prescriptive passage. It's not telling us if we should do this, even if that was right or wrong, it doesn't say. But we do get the clear impression that divorce, in this case, was regarded as the lesser of two evils. God hates divorce. But he hates idolatry more. And so in this case, it seems like divorce was permitted. It's an interesting passage, but like I said again, it's, it's actually not direct for us. We are looking, though, for some direct information. Is there direct teaching on whether or not God permits divorce for us today? And when we turn to the New Testament, we find some of that direct teaching on divorce. Is divorce ever permitted by God The New Testament speaks directly on the issue. It makes clear the answer is yes. Yes, it is. But only in two specific cases. There are only two exceptions or permissions for divorce in the Bible. There are only two ways you can get a divorce and not be sinning before the Lord. So you probably want to know what these are. And so this leads to question number two. Question number two. What is the first permission for divorce? What is the first permission for divorce? This is very clear. The answer is adultery. Adultery. This one comes from the mouth of Jesus himself in Matthew 5. So turn there. If you have your Bibles, turn back to Matthew 5 from Mark 10. Years before Mark 10, Jesus had already taught on divorce in the Sermon on the Mount. And he said essentially the same thing. He already knew the Jews were abusing Deuteronomy 24, that whole thing. So he put a stop to that. He corrects their view of divorce. Same thing, but he does add one exception. And let's read this, Matthew 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. So he says this in verse 31, just a couple of verses. Matthew 5, verse 31. Jesus speaking. It was said... Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is very similar to what Jesus said in Mark 10. The Jews, they thought they could divorce for any old reason. And they felt justified as long as they had the right paperwork. Certificate of divorce. But Jesus says, no, that's not the case. If you divorce, in fact, and then you remarry, you actually are committing adultery because you are wrongly breaking the one flesh union. But there's one exception to that, though. He does give one exception. He says, except for the reason of unchastity. And before we comment on that, Jesus says the exact same thing one more time. Same thing, but I just want to show you it's in Matthew 19. So go ahead, turn there to Matthew 19. It's going to say the same thing, but think about Matthew 19. That's the parallel passage to Mark 10, which we studied last week. And Mark just, or Matthew just tells us more information. But we see the same thing said. We're not going to read the whole thing, but just look at verse 9 of Matthew 19. Same thing, Matthew 19, verse 9. Jesus said, And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. We have the same statement, the same teaching, the same exception. In fact, it's the same word used in both cases. The one exception that Jesus gives for divorce is immorality, and in the Greek, both verses, it's the same word. It's porneia, and that word—it's pretty obvious. It's talking about sexual immorality. It's not complicated. It's talking about any forms of sexual relations outside of marriage. So if a spouse commits these extramarital relations, they become what's known as an adulterer. And in this violation, Jesus says, the door of divorce is opened. Now please note, this is not a command to divorce. We're not being commanded to divorce. It is a permission to divorce. When one partner commits adultery, they violate the one-flesh union. And in this case, as a mercy, God permits divorce. But, of course, if the sinning partner is repentant and broken, you, you can choose to forgive them and to save the marriage. And if you're able, that's a great thing. That's a fantastic thing. And God's grace is sufficient to heal broken marriages, even in the midst of adultery, and can really turn them around. So that that's great. But the door of the divorce... The door of divorce is open. And if you go through the door, you are not sinning. Now, just to point out, some Christians do disagree. There's a few Christians around, and they believe that God never, ever, ever permits divorce. It's always wrong because, like God said, God hates divorce. And they're forced to play some verbal just gymnastics with, with what Jesus says because he's actually pretty clear with this exception. But I just, I just want you to think about this. Stop and ask yourself, why do you think God permits divorce when it comes to adultery? Why is that? I mean, he does hate divorce, so why does he permit it when it comes to adultery? And the answer goes back to the Old Testament. In God's old covenant law, what was the penalty for adultery? It was death. Now, our, America totally tolerates adultery, but back then, the penalty was death. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, just one example says this. If there's a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. It sounds like super harsh, but this was God's standard. It tells you how seriously God takes marriage. You don't mess around with that. They didn't have laws for divorce after adultery because they'd just be killed. And then you'd be a widow, and you're free to remarry. But think about this. Fast forward to the day of Jesus. The theocracy of Israel is over. The nation of Israel, it's but a shell of its former self. They're not a sovereign nation. They're ruled by the Romans. The Romans don't have a law of death for adultery. The Jews still have this law, but by Jesus' day, they never, ever enforced this. And so if you have a couple have a couple, one person commits adultery. According to God's old covenant law, what do they deserve? They deserve death. But what does he or she get? They get mercy. They aren't killed. They are allowed to live. That's called mercy. Jesus himself showed mercy to a woman caught in adultery. He didn't excuse her sin, but he also didn't execute her for her sin. He showed mercy and that's good. God's prerogative, that's a good thing. But what is the recourse for the innocent party when your spouse has broken the bond of marriage through adultery? Death is no longer an option. Your recourse is divorce. And this too is an act of mercy. Listen, why should the guilty party be shown mercy by being allowed to live while the innocent party is shown no mercy they're forced to remain married to an adulterer? Again, it's not a command to divorce. If the other person is repentant and broken, you can forgive. I would say you should forgive. God can redeem broken marriages. But especially if you're married to someone, they've committed adultery, there's no repentance, no remorse, no regret. They don't care. That's why this permission is given, to free someone as a mercy to them from being married to an adulterer who has already broken the union. Does God hate divorce? He does. He does hate divorce, but he's a merciful God. And if even the guilty are shown a form of mercy, the innocent are shown a form of mercy as well. And this is why first divorce is permitted in the case of adultery. And we'll leave it there. We can say a lot more, but we'll leave it here for now. First permission for divorce is adultery. Now moving on, I told you there were two permissions for divorce in the Bible. You probably want to know about number two now. So this will be our third question. Question number three. What is the second permission for divorce? Simple enough. What is the second permission for divorce? The answer is equally clear. It is abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. And you have to get all of that. Abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. This comes to us from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So turn there. You're going to want to turn there. We're going to be looking at a lot of, 1 Corinthians 7, so turn there now. The Corinthian church had a lot of problems and a lot of questions, so Paul writes to address those problems and answer those questions. And we're obviously not going to cover everything in the chapter. I want to start by focusing in on what he says about marriage and divorce. 1 Corinthians 7, start off from verses 10 and 11. Paul says, But to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Here, Paul is relaying some instructions that come from Jesus himself when he was on earth. This is actually nothing new. We know this from Jesus. He's saying you shouldn't leave your wife, you shouldn't divorce your wife or your spouse. Those words are being used in parallel. You're dealing with two Christians and there's no adultery, then there's no grounds for divorce. As simple as that. If you have two Christians, there's no adultery, and there can be no divorce. You should not separate. If one person goes ahead and separates anyway, and they get that divorce, they are sinning. They need to repent, and the fruit of that repentance would be to reconcile with their spouse. But most certainly, they should not complicate the matter. By remarrying, because then, like Christ said, they would be entering adultery. You don't want to go there. So, if a divorce does take place between two Christians, at the very least, he says you need to remain unmarried, and at very best, reconcile with your spouse. Hopefully, the spouse who committed the divorce will repent of their unbiblical divorce and seek reconciliation. This is where both partners need to be fighting for their marriage. I mean, it's, it's never that easy, of course. It's always difficult, and sin gets in the way. I would just tell you, don't let it get that far. You need to come in and get some biblical counseling, some help when you're dealing before this or after this. But nonetheless, first things first, if we're talking about two Christians. If no adultery is present, then there are no grounds for divorce, and certainly not remarriage. But the, the real question, though, is what if you're married to a non-Christian, to an unbeliever? This was a huge issue for the Corinthian church. Because all these pagans, and some of them get saved, but their spouse is still a pagan. Worshipping all the Roman gods, stuff like that. So can you be married to an idolater like that, to a pagan? I thought that's wrong. Well, the answer here is very clear. Paul gives us some new revelation in verses 12-13. Meaning, Jesus didn't say this on earth, but Paul is still giving us a word from the Lord. So let's keep reading now verse 12. He goes on and says, To the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Again, what he's saying is Jesus didn't talk about this scenario while he was on earth, but Paul is speaking still authoritatively from the Lord. And the point is this. If you're married to an unbeliever, basically the ball is in their court. If they consent to live with you, then you have no grounds for divorce. You must stay married. In 2 Corinthians, Paul made it very clear that you should not enter marriage with a non christian that's forbidden. Don't get married to a non-Christian. But if through the course of events, you find yourself now married to a non-Christian, maybe you came to salvation, they never were saved, or you both thought you were Christians, but they've fallen away from the faith. Either way, now you're married to a non-Christian. The bottom line is, if they consent to live with you, divorce is not allowed. You stay in that marriage. And if that is the case, you, as a believing spouse... Now you have a huge opportunity, a huge ministry with your unbelieving spouse. You are called to live as a witness to your spouse, to be a light to them, to share the gospel with them, show them what a redeemed life looks like, and you are called to influence your kids for the Lord. And granted, you have an unbeliever with his, world, his or her worldview in the house, but you are the best chance your children have of hearing of the Lord. So do everything you can to influence them for the Lord. You need to persevere, endure, witness, be a light to your family. And God promises he will bless your family on your account. That's what verse 14 says, the next verse. Look there. He says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. It's not a promise, that your unbelieving spouse or child will be saved. But he's saying that in a way, they are set apart, which is what the word sanctified means. They're set apart through your influence. As God brings a blessing upon your life as a believer, it's by association. Your family, your kids will be blessed. But if you, if you separate, your, your spouse, your kids will have no gospel influence. But God can bless you, them through you. Of course, where we're always praying for the ultimate blessing that your unbelieving spouse will come to salvation through your witness. I mean, that would be the best. But even if they don't, if they consent to live with you, they want to stay in the marriage, then you stay in the marriage. There is no grounds for divorce. But now one more question here. What if now you're married to an unbeliever, but they don't want to stay married? They they want to leave. They want a divorce. They abandon you. What then? This is the next verse, verse 15. He continues and he says, Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases that God has called us to peace. The word for leave here, Paul already used this for divorce. He's talking about divorce. So basically, if your unbelieving spouse makes it clear, they want no marriage, they want divorce, they abandon you then in this case, once again, the door of divorce is open. You are permitted to divorce. No no command, but you are permitted to divorce. This is the second of two legitimate permissions for divorce in the Bible. Paul says the believer is not under bondage in such cases. Talking about the bond of marriage. The other partner has already done away with the bond of marriage, so you are not forced to hold on to that bond while the other person has, has already let go. Being an unbeliever, it's not like they're going to submit to the word and the will of God. So if they choose to leave as a mercy that you are enabled to live a life of peace, you may let them leave. You are permitted to get a divorce. And on the surface, that sounds simple enough, but it never is. It it never is. More questions abound. For example, what really constitutes abandonment? What does it really mean to consent to live with someone? For example, what if you have an unbelieving spouse, and they hate your guts? They want nothing to do with you. They don't want any relationship, but they want to live with you in the same house for kind of tax purposes because of your income. They want to. They want to still live with you. Does that constitute abandonment? Sort of. I mean, what do you do? And there, it always gets like that. The Bible doesn't get that specific. There are countless scenarios like that, and we don't have the time today to tackle all those rabbit trails. But I'll tell you this. For our purposes, I just want you to know and to be equipped with the basic principles of Scripture and the clear revelation. What do you do when things get complicated like that? That's what God has given leaders to the church for. This is why God has placed godly shepherds over His people. We need godly men who are super well-versed in Scripture and God's wisdom to help us navigate the gray areas. Scripture doesn't actually say about that. We need some wisdom in Scripture to coincide here. What do we do? We need leaders for that. That's why they're there. And when it comes to divorce like this, it almost always comes down to navigating the gray areas on a case-by-case basis. So we're not going to take it further. But for now, we'll be content with what we've learned that's black and white. God's will for marriage is black and white. One man, one woman for life till death do them part. But God's permission for divorce, it's also black and white, adultery or abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Any other divorce is not permitted by God to become sin. Anything more complicated than that needs to be dealt with very slowly and carefully and with the resources of your church elders and your leadership. That's why they're there. You need a shepherd to go see them. Well, you can see, this is is heavy stuff, right? This is pretty serious stuff to tackle. I hope, though, some of these questions and answers are already giving you at least some clarity in your mind for thinking through these issues. A few more questions I'd like us to tackle. We've already covered, actually, the big passages, Mark 10, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7. So we can actually do these three more questions in in more of a rapid-fire fashion. Let's do that now. We've talked about divorce a bunch, and I want a few questions on remarriage. So question number four is this. Is remarriage permitted for Christians who have been legitimately divorced? Is remarriage permitted for Christians who have been legitimately divorced? We alluded to this earlier, but just to be clear, the answer is yes. Whenever there is a divorce on biblical grounds, remarriage is permitted. In fact, that's one of the main reasons these divorce permissions are given in Scripture. It's almost always assumed that when a person becomes single, either by death or divorce, they want to remarry, they're going to remarry. And so permission to divorce is always taken as permission to remarry as well. Of course, if there's an illegitimate divorce, then no, that becomes adultery, like like Jesus said. Paul makes permission to remarry for the legitimately divorced clear in 1 Corinthians 7. So you should already be here. In this chapter... Paul has three words for single people. The uh, the virgin, the widow, and the unmarried. The virgin is single because they've never been married. The widow is single because their spouse has passed away. And the unmarried, according to Paul's usage, they're single not because they've never been married, not because their spouse passed away, but because they're divorced. These are the previously married, the divorced. So with that in mind, listen to what Paul says to the divorced, to widows in verses 8 and 9, first Corinthians 7. He says, But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them to remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. When Paul's writing this, he's single. At the very least, at the time, he's single. Maybe never married, maybe widowed, but we don't know. But that that being single afforded him so much free time to serve the Lord. It was great. So he's giving some wisdom here for people who find themselves single, either by death of the spouse or divorce of their spouse. He's talking to Christians and he's saying either way, it's good to be single. There's wisdom there. But if you're not able, if you're not ready, if you still have these desires, then go ahead and be married. You're free to be married. He's actually not giving a command here, but presenting us with wisdom which you'll see as a theme, that you are free to remarry. So the answer to the question, yes, remarriage is permitted for those Christians who have gone through a legitimate divorce. There's only one kicker, and that is you must remarry, like he says in verse 39, only in the Lord, meaning you must remarry another Christian. And that, that rule never changes. You are called to marry only other believers. Let's see to another question, a little stickier. Question number five. Is remarriage permitted for Christians who have been illegitimately divorced before they were Christians? Is remarriage permitted for Christians who have been illegitimately divorced before they got saved? Again, if, if you if you're a Christian and you get that illegitimate divorce, Jesus says, No remarriage, that becomes adultery. But what if it happened before you were saved? What if it happened before you generally were saved? It happens more than you might think. Two people, they get married. They're both unbelievers, technically. You know, whatever they call themselves, they're both unbelievers. Later, they get a divorce for unbiblical reasons. But then one of them gets saved. They get saved. They want to serve the Lord. That everything in their life changes. And later, though, they, they, they want to remarry. But they have that unbiblical divorce in their past. So, are they allowed to? What what can they do? And look, this whole topic, we know, we're not dealing with anything ideal. We're just trying to make the best sense we, ha- we can out of a fallen, broken world. But what, what can this person do? Well, look, at salvation, if you become a true believer, that means part of that, you repent of all your past sins. And in this case, it's going to include a, a wrong divorce. And as you repent, God forgives you. He gives you everything, including that, that divorce. But can you remarry Well, we get some more wisdom and guidance from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So this time, look at verses 27 and 28. Notice what he says here. He says, Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. So again, here's what's going on in the context. Paul, is, he's talking to Christians, and he's addressing them according to the status they were when they got saved. So, so in other words, he's saying, look, when you got saved, were you already married? To a believer or an unbeliever, it doesn't matter. When you got saved, were you already married? He says, then stay married. Or when you got saved, were you released from a wife? Meaning, were you divorced? And he says, well, stay single. But, he says after that, but if you do marry, he says you haven't sinned. You may have some trouble in life, and you're going to have a blended family, and that's some hardship, but he says you are free to marry. So once again, he's not giving a command. This is called wisdom. We're not going to be commanded one way or another. If you're divorced, and then you become a Christian, you're forgiven of all things, and your options are open. There's There's some wisdom in staying single. But if you desire to remarry, you are free to remarry. You're not sinning either way, he says. The decision is up to you. You need to be very wise and careful in that decision. But yes, you are free to remarry if you're divorced before becoming a Christian. Let me throw in one quick note, though. Should you, in this case, be reconciled to your first spouse? Should you go back to your first spouse if you get saved and and they're an unbeliever? Well, it really depends. If your old spouse has remarried, the answer is no. The door has been closed. You cannot be reconciled and remarried. If your old spouse is still an unbeliever, the answer is no. You cannot be remarried. Because then the other principle kicks in. You can't marry unbelievers. And two wrongs don't make a right. So the door is still closed. Only if your old spouse independently got saved can you seek reconciliation and remarriage with them. And that would be a great thing. And praise God for that. It happens. It's an amazing thing. But if that doesn't take place, you are free to remarry, again, only in the Lord. All right, one final question. We covered a lot. I know it's heavy. You guys have hung in there. But I want to include one last question for you this morning. And it's this, number six. If a Christian had an illegitimate divorce and remarriage, does that mean they're living in a permanent state of adultery? Talk about that. Jesus said that, but we haven't actually addressed it. He said, if you if you get a wrong divorce and remarriage, you commit adultery. So does that mean if you're a Christian and you had an illegitimate divorce and remarriage, does that mean you're living in a permanent state of adultery? And again, this happens. Maybe you take a Christian couple and they're really immature in the Lord, or they're ignorant, or maybe they're just outright disobedient. And either way, they decide to get a divorce, and it's an unbiblical divorce. And so now they're single, but then they remarry. Fast forward, and, and they grow in the Lord. They start to grow in the Lord a little bit, and they realize that what they did was actually wrong. Their divorce was illegitimate, and technically that means their remarriage was adultery. So does that mean they're living in a permanent state of adultery? Can, can they ever be right with God again? And to be quick with this one, the answer is no. This does not make you a permanent adulterer. You don't become a permanent adulterer. Jesus did say the, your act of remarriage after a wrongful divorce is an act of adultery. But he, doesn't, he didn't say it makes you a perpetual adulterer. And can you ever be right with God again? Of course. Of course you can. Like any sin, you need to repent. First, you have to come to realize that your divorce was unbiblical. It was sin. You sinned by getting that divorce. And then you have to realize that technically your remarriage was unauthorized. It was an act of adultery, and it's wrong. When people hear that, they get real prideful, real defensive. They don't want to ever accept that. But this is just part of repentance. You have to humble yourself and say, you know what, we did wrong. We did wrong. Confess your sin before the Lord. Acknowledge you have done wrong. And ask for his forgiveness, and he'll forgive you. In this case, your repentance does not include divorcing your new spouse. No. Like I said before, two wrongs don't make a right. Your new marriage, we'll call it not illegitimate, it's unauthorized is a better word, but it's still binding before the Lord. Your marriage is still a covenant before God, and it's binding before Him. Both of you need to humbly seek the Lord's forgiveness that will make you right with God, and then move on. Then you move on. God has providentially allowed this to happen. So whenever there's sin, you repent of it. You're right with God. You move on. Your new marriage is binding. So you need to love your new spouse. You need to honor that marriage. And in God's providence, you in a way have been given another chance. Do it right this time. And that's it. And really it's just going to come down to your heart. True believers are heartbroken over all their past sins, whether that includes divorce or not. They want to do what's right before God, whatever that entails. They're going to do it, and that delights God. But I'll tell you this, some people, they have the hard attitude where they secretly think to themselves, you know, I'm just going to to get this divorce. I know it's wrong. I know it's wrong before God. I'm just going to get this divorce because I really want to marry this other person. They make me so much happier. And, you know, after the fact, I'll just repent. God will forgive me later. God wants me to be happy, right? And hopefully you see the problem with this. This person doesn't serve God at all. They serve their own personal happiness. They're their own God. And they're abusing God. They're abusing His grace. And revealing, really, it's the heart of a non-believer. That's what it reveals. But don't count on God letting His grace be abused. God will judge. And any couple with unrepentant sin in their lives should not expect God's blessing, but rather His discipline. But a genuine heart will grieve over past sins, Seek the Lord's forgiveness. Embrace God's will for the future. And then move on. And whatever situation you find yourself in, come to terms with your past. there's sin, you repent of it. And then just get on with living life to the glory of God. You don't need to live in that past. You need to move on. At the end of the day, I think we can all agree, none of us have a clean past, right? And that leads to an important final reminder. I want to leave you with this thought. Think about... All, the, all that's wrong in your life. Think about all that's wrong in your life, whether that includes divorce and remarriage or not. And either way, your troubles are because of your sin or someone else's sin, and likely both. Sin, you have to see what it's done. It has invaded our world, and it destroys everything. It destroys families and marriages and livelihoods and so on. That's what sin does. And even worse, all this sin is before a holy God who will judge so so, what? Does that mean we're just destined to live miserable lives and then be judged? Is that all we have to look forward to? But as you think about all the hurt in your life, you have to remember this. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came to earth. We, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short. We've all hurt other people. We've all been hurt by other people. Most importantly, we've all hurt God, sinned against God, Yet God, while we were still His enemies, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to to fix all that hurt, to make up for that. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, that we can be forgiven. Remember, what does sin do? It separates, it divides. It divides us from God, us from others. But as Christ died and rose again and conquered sin, He enabled what? Reconciliation. Reconciliation. Jesus is the key to our reconciliation. First with God, Romans 5, verse 10. While we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus removed the sin that separates us from God. Additionally, Jesus is the key to our reconciliation with others. Sin separates us. It destroys all of our relationships. But in Christ We have the ability to overcome that and to be knit together into one body, Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free, married or divorced, doesn't matter. Jesus is in the business of taking broken people, putting them back together, and even making them into one. So the bottom line is this. You have real problems, but Jesus is the real answer to all of your real problems. And that includes whatever you have in your past. He can forgive your past sins, comfort your present hurts, secure your future blessing. And so ultimately, for all things, you need to just turn to him in faith. Follow him as Lord. Confess him as Savior. He will make your life new. And that new life in Jesus, that's the greatest hope any divorced person can have. And that goes for all of us, no matter what our past entails. Faith in Jesus doesn't instantly make all your problems go away he equips you to deal with those problems in a way that glories God. And if you're having real problems, you can always get help from your shepherds at this church. I want to let you know that. But with that being said, you need to know that the way of the Lord is good. Our ways, the way of the world leads to suffering, turmoil, hardship. But God's way, if you follow, brings you real peace and joy. And where is God's way found? how we how we started off asking that question, where's the way? And the answer is, is Jesus. Jesus will lead you that way. He is the way. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Because that's what you need to do. Hope in Jesus, follow him, find in him the way, the truth, and the life. That we all so desperately need. Join me in a word of prayer. Lord, it's so true that we we desperately need the way and the truth and the life. And when we don't have that in ourselves, the way of the world is bankrupt and leads only to to sin, to division, to strife, to suffering, ultimately to death, even an eternal death. We are lost apart from you. Thank you so much, Lord, for for that mercy for all of our sins in sending Jesus to earth to die on the cross We can can be forgiven and reconciled to you. Jesus removes the dividing wall between us and you and even between others. Lord, we have no hope in having meaningful, lasting relationships with other people if we're unredeemed, if we're still living in sin. There's no real hope. But if we come to know you and follow you as real disciples, all our problems don't go away, but we have all the hope in the world because you and the power of the gospel can equip us to overcome sin, to change, to love, and to to be with others, even though they are imperfect as we are, and stay together. Lord, we as a church want to represent you to the world. We want to be a light. I pray you bless our marriages here, that we fight for marriage, that those who are having trouble get the help they need, and that all of us are depending on you and your Scripture to guide us. In this, you are pleased, we are blessed. The world is given a witness to help us in this, Lord. We, We want to honor you. Thank you for these answers this morning. May we follow your blessed way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.